When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Testing, testing. Still way too loud. Can get Jamie? Can you please come get Ellie? Okay, let's try this again. You're listening to the Neurodivergent Nurse, and I'm your host, Jamie. I'm a registered nurse who has ADHD. On this podcast, we will talk all things ADHD. I'm really just beginning to learn about this diagnosis and how to navigate through it. But I am so excited to take you on this messy and raw journey with me so that we can learn together. So let's get started. At 27, a mere five years into healthcare, I was burned out. This was not a small campfire burnout. No. Always the overachiever. When I burned out, I did it forest fire style. Destructive, painful, and life-changing that experience brought me face-to-face with my own mortality. This is an excerpt by Beth Paul from the blog PaulStyleAdventuresInADHD.com, who is also our guest today on The Neurodivergent Nurse. She was nice enough to come on and to have a conversation and talk about her journey. Welcome to The Neurodivergent Nurse. I have a nurse who we connected on Instagram. She has a blog that is really, really heartwarming. It's something that you can definitely identify with. And I just wanted her to come on this show because sometimes it's nice to hear the story of another person and all the things that they've gone through and to see that they have become successful through their ADHD and they've overcome so much so that it can give you a little bit of hope too. So I want to welcome to the show, Beth. Thank you for joining today. I really appreciate you taking the time to be on this. Can you tell people a little bit about yourself, what you do? Okay, sure. So my name is Beth and uh, we live in Washington State. I have a nursing agency here called In It Together RN. So we work with clients in uh, long-term care facilities, adult family homes, uh, and in their own home, helping to provide case management and those kinds of things. And I started that kind of work back in 2010 and then became an agency in 2016. And we also teach courses for caregivers. I started my blog and my Instagram just a couple of months ago, and it's called Paul Style Adventures in ADHD. And it was just a way of kind of exploring and hopefully helping other people to feel comfortable talking about their neurodivergencies and feeling as if that didn't have to be something that would prevent them from being happy and successful. So that's kind of who I am. I love it so much. If you are not familiar with this blog, I'm going to add the link in the show notes. You really need to go check it out because if you just need a dose of feeling seen and heard and understood, this is a great place for you to spend three minutes reading through a post and it's going to brighten your day. Before we get into all of the neurodivergency I want you to talk just a little bit about your business because I love the elderly population. Like that is my heart of people. So I want to know just a little bit more about how you got involved with that. 
Sure. So I came from hospital nursing into hospice nursing for a few years. Hmm. And then after my son was born, I had a salaried position at a hospice agency and it was just really, really demanding. And I later figured out some of that may have had to do with ADHD, but I didn't know that back then. I just knew that it wasn't all working together. And so I kind of set out to figure out something a little bit different. And I fell into this specialized form of nursing that's common in Washington state, but not necessarily a lot of other places called nurse delegation. And so nurse delegation is a process that allows caregivers to do nursing tasks in these small facilities, which here are called adult family homes. They have a few different names depending on what state you're in. And so I ran into this option and I said, okay, let's try this. And so my husband has a marketing brain and he was like, well, you need to set it up. You're going to grow someday. I don't know about that, but okay. I love what faith he had in you. Like that's that's awesome. Right. He also just creates businesses for fun in his head. And some of them become businesses and some don't. And we we jumped in and I started that. And this was all like back in right as, as the last recession, 2009, 2010 was when I first started doing delegation and he had gotten laid off from Boeing. So he was trying to start his own business doing restoration work on classic cars. And so we're just kind of plugging along, trying to make sense of all of that. And then I didn't really know that some of the dynamics of the nurse delegation industry. And as I did it longer, whenever someone said, Hey, can you do this? I've just checked the laws, the wax here in Washington and go, Oh yeah, that's legal. I can do that. Or no, I can't. And what I didn't realize was some of those things that I was doing were things other people were nervous to do, but they were legal. And so we started to, people appreciated that and they appreciated the style. And so we, I was just super busy. So in 2016, both of our businesses were getting busier and we had uh, three kids at home. My husband has two from another marriage and then we have our 11 year old and we were just running crazy. So we started talking about what it might look like to have one business in the family that we did together. And what became of it was forming an agency So getting a different kind of license and then uh, being able to hire other nurses. So we got to the point where we could do that in 2016 and then just grew and grew and grew. Peak, we had nine nurses. I'm looking for more nurses right now. So we have seven on our team right now. And we serve about 400 different clients under like, we have four different Medicaid contracts here in Washington. And then we also do private pay. And we have an LNI contract. So we just kind of, we fill in the gaps. Our, our tagline is we help people age the way they want and the location we want. So we don't advocate any specific, like, oh, you need to stay home. You need to age in place. Or, oh, you should go to an assisted living. We look at the individual and go, well, where is it that you want to be? And how can you be happy? We're going to help you get there. So that's what we do. I feel like that should be the mentality of healthcare in general. I, I mean, so, I mean, I worked in neuro ICU for roughly a decade, rapid response now, but you see so many people, situations in the end of life is not how they wanted because they were influenced by providers, by family, by whatever, but to have that advocate on their side to help them fulfill the way that they want to go through that process is such a beautiful thing. Thank you for sharing that with me. 
I don't know if you're aware, but one of the talents of people with ADHD brains is that we love to create, and it is no different for yours truly. I actually happen to have an Etsy shop. The name is Hope for Human Kindness, where my creations are up for sale, whether it's art on canvas, art on wine bottles, handmade door hangers by myself and my mom together. Head on over and check it out and see if maybe, just maybe, you want to bring some of that beauty into your everyday life as well. And again, the Etsy shop is hope for human kindness and it's all one word. Now go check it out before you forget and then come back and finish listening to this podcast episode. Let's go back a bit to your whole journey. And I mean, this podcast is all about ADHD and neurodivergency. When were you diagnosed with ADHD? So technically I've never been diagnosed with ADHD. I've received other diagnoses in my life, but not, I've never gone back. So my husband diagnosed me with ADHD about seven or eight years ago, but I didn't think he was at all accurate, maybe longer, but I figured it out after I started. So when my son was seven or eight, probably about eight, I started researching ways to support him and I ran across the concept of twice exceptional children and I started to see myself in the concept of neurodivergence, but I didn't know how that applied. And then I kept learning about it over time and I actually diagnosed myself by accident. I was at Barnes and Nobles one day and there was a book and I don't even know, I wish I could credit the author, but I don't know what I was reading, but it was a book about ADHD and marriage. And there was a chart in the book and it had two columns. It, and it was the, the neurotypical spouse does this and the ADHD spouse does this. And as I'm going down the column thinking I'm the neurotypical one, I kept going, okay, yeah, that, that's true. My husband's over here. But I went, why am I always in the wrong column? What's, and that's, that's when it suddenly all came together. And I called my husband. I was like, You're, you were serious when you told me I had ADHD, weren't you? He's like, well, yeah. So I think you're right. He's like, uh-huh. I know. So that, that was how I kind of pieced it all together. And then as I learned more and more about it, when I came upon the concept of the rejection sensitivity dysphoria and the emotional part, that was where it really brought my whole history. And I went, oh, wait, all these other diagnoses, these were, it was all leading to here. And this is how it all fit together for me. Which is wild because with rejection sensitivity dysphoria, some of that goes along with social anxiety. Yet you have a successful business right now. Like you put yourself on the line. You had belief in yourself, even though there were a lot of issues and there were a lot of outside static that could potentially make you feel like you would not be successful. (laughs) Well, I think a lot of that had to do with my husband and the partnership we had. Um, So we both have ADHD, but it looks really, um, he definitely, he had that much more typical, he had the hyperactive little boy in the class who did every adrenaline. He was in the X Games back in 96. So, you know, just whatever adrenaline seeking activities, he was there. So he looked like what you'd think. You're mark- super outgoing, marketing, natural, those kinds of things. And I definitely followed more, fell more in that internal, the ADD, as they used to call it, kind of persona. So when we started the business, he really, he constantly pushed me out of my comfort zone. And when we got together, I wouldn't return pants at Costco. And he just, he wouldn't let up. He's like, just do it. You can do this. You just need to do it. And so I really think that's, you know, every networking meeting I went to, 
he's like, just go, just go. It's okay. Just go. And that really was a huge part of, I don't think I would have gotten to the point I was without someone going, no, you can do this. Keep going, keep going. And then over time you start to get the confidence and go, oh, huh. Okay. The world did not end. I can do a little bit more. I feel like my mom was always that person that she was the one I commented on one of your posts that she was the one that was like, Jamie, it's okay. Everyone always starts at the same place. They don't start knowing everything about this. They don't start being amazing. They, they don't begin with being an expert, but it never really sunk in. And I just, my heart breaks for the people who they don't really have that support system to push them, to encourage them to be a safe place to land when they're not successful, because in reality, we're all human. So so we're all going to make mistakes. We're all going to have imperfections that we feel are very apparent to the world, but it really probably isn't. I want to talk about how you dealt with nursing school and even beginning jobs as a nurse with undiagnosed ADHD before you even had an idea that this was something that was going on with your brain that you, you know, saw yourself as one of the typical people. One of the areas where I was gifted and I didn't really reflect on that until I was older was I had really strong verbal skills. Um, and so that really helped me. And so that's part of why I never even considered ADHD because I was a, a high grades always through school. And in nursing school, I remember people saying, oh, I studied for this many hours and I didn't have to study that hard. It was something I could easily hyper-focus on. And looking back, I know like I couldn't study at home. I'd always go to coffee shops and I'd study for like six hours before a test or eight hours but I didn't study a week before. And I remember in nursing school, I once had to drive a paper because this was before the internet was quite as common. So I had to actually deliver the paper. And I I drove the paper in at five o'clock to put on my professor's desk, which now I look back and I'm like, yeah, that's pretty clear. And I just, I worked all the way through nursing school. So I was constantly under those deadlines and constantly operating under adrenaline and that helped. So nursing school, I enjoyed and I was fairly successful at it. When I got out, I I moved out of my parents' house right after graduating from nursing school. I was 22. I moved about an hour and a half away from my parents. I did fine at work, but that's where I started to kind of feel like my life in general was unraveling more. I always had mood issues and those kinds of things, but I also had a bit of trauma in my childhood, which looking back, it makes sense. Um, My dad's undiagnosed, but on the autism spectrum and there was my mom had mental health stuff. So our, my whole family, you can see just a lot of that. Once you realize what you're looking for, you're like, why is there so much trauma in this family of people who primarily do care about each other, but it's generations of just not being quite typical. So when things started to unravel, I just attributed it to trauma or those kinds of things. Like I just didn't deal with it, but it was really that lack of structure. So I couldn't get things done on my days off. I bit off more, you know, I couldn't seem to manage money, even though I knew I was making enough money to pay my bills. It just, things didn't, didn't come together. And I quickly found that the hospital felt difficult for me. And I was either bored or anxious. Clients didn't necessarily, like people were happy with my work. I really liked taking care. I think when I was working with a patient, I was able to really quickly hyper-focus in on whatever needed to be done. So that was good. But everything around that, I jumped around my first few years of nursing. I, I switched departments. I um, 
like, so I moved to this small town and then I moved back to Portland and I went to work at a bigger hospital, but then that unit, it was the same patients. My first job was a rural hospital. So lots of variety. And I loved that. When you said your first couple of jobs, like what type of environment were you, was it med surge? Was it ICU? Was it palliative right off the bat? No. So cardiac step down was what I did mm-hmm. in the, the Dells, which was the smaller town. So 49 bed hospital. So there are cardiac, we had a six bed ICU. So sometimes I'd float in there. So I learned a little ICU, but mostly it was the telemetry unit, but their telemetry was everybody who was a little too sick for med surge. So tons of variety. And I liked that a lot as far as the patient care. But then I went to the bigger hospital and their telemetry unit was just your couple days post open heart, you know, rule out MI. So rule out heart attack, same stuff over and over. And so from there, I went to cardiac intensive care. But by the time I switched to cardiac intensive care, um, I was kind of already on a downward spiral towards burnout. And I was looking for something. I was looking for a solution. And ICU wasn't the solution because I was going the wrong direction. I was like, oh, well, I'll make it more interesting. But I hadn't figured out yet that my passion for nursing comes from connecting with people. And I need to be able to teach and I need to be able to motivate. And none of that happens in ICU. So that I was only in ICU for about a year. And then from there, that's when I went to hospice. So a big like, okay, let me just go all the way up the other direction. And in there, I also taught nursing assisting classes. So I kind of started, I just fell into that at the school I'd gone to nursing school at. So I started to kind of realize I also like to teach, but that was just a side gig I picked up along the way. How long were you a nurse by the time that you got to cardiac ICU? Uh, five years. Yeah, I'd been an RN, a registered nurse for five years at that point. When do you feel like your burnout really started? You know, it's hard to say because from probably about a year after, I don't know where burnout and potentially an episode of depression and ADHD symptoms all started. But within a year of getting out of nursing school, I started to spiral with emotions and struggle, but I was able to maintain for a while. And I mean, I, so I moved back to Portland in 2006 and I moved back because I was trying to restabilize my own mental health, even though I didn't have a name for what I was dealing with. So that was about two and a half years after I was in the small town for about two and a half years, moved back. And then 2007 is when I really burned out. So it took a couple of years to really kind of hit a a bottom in the process that my grandfather um, had a massive heart attack and was in critical care for about a month. And everyone, I mean, I was the nurse in the family. So Mm -hmm. I put a huge amount of energy into providing support there. So I was just giving at all directions and didn't have the skills yet to know how to cope with any of that. So, wow. When I would get advice as a new nurse, like, oh, just let the families grieve. You can't be too engaged. It was horrible advice because I couldn't possibly not care. That was that was impossible. I'm going to stop for every dog on the side of the road. And, you know, like whatever it is, it needs to be, that was just who I was. So when I read that in your blog post, I was laughing to myself because I remember the first time my first job, well, I mean, kind of first job within the first year, I worked at an ICU in the middle of nowhere, Tennessee. And I had a patient who had, um, 
a type of cancer that was very, very rare. And he woke up and he couldn't breathe. And he was like, baby, I can't breathe. And I've taken care of him for about two weeks at this point. And his daughter was at bedside. I just remember breaking down because I hadn't experienced much death at that point in my career. And I remember one of the nurses who said, Jamie, you need to, uh, you need to get tough. Like you can cry later on your own, but the family, you need to be strong for them. And I was thinking, no, this man needs to know that my heart is breaking because the world is going to be void of this beautiful, beautiful soul. And this daughter also needs to know in my head, in my opinion, if I put myself in these shoes, I, if it was my father, I would want somebody to be sad that his life was ending. I would want somebody who spent time with him to be saddened because his presence wasn't available anymore. And I, I mean, I feel like that's very common in the world of nursing that we get that kind of advice of, no, you just need to tough it up, like be strong, do what you need to do, and you can cry about it later. Terrible advice, in my opinion. Right? It really is. I agree. And it's so hard because it plants the seed of potentially like wondering in the future. I, I mean, can, can I grieve? Can I? When you develop a relationship with someone that you poured all of your time, all of your energy, all of you into to help them survive or to help them have peace. And then you're told that you can't have the emotions that go along with it is awful. Awful. Yeah. Yeah. And it just doesn't work. You, you can tell someone don't feel that. And okay, don't look right. at that hole in the wall. Well, that's all you're going to see now. While we're talking about you being a nurse and undiagnosed and not really understanding what was going on in your head or how to process things. Did you have any issues at work, like being late or like what, what type of employee were you? I never had any complaints. Like, um, I, up until when I was working in ICU, I started to have absentee issues, but I was always on time. Um, I always had my charting done. I struggled with charting when I went to hospice. Um, hospice nursing is much less structured than the hospital. Um, and so when I had the flexibility, that's where you could really see all of a sudden I was always behind on charting. But when I worked in the hospital, I was a pretty solid employee. I, when I first started nursing, I was young and I remember coming into the field and feeling like all the other new grads were so much more confident than me. And then after I'd been in the field for about a year, I started catching the mistakes from some of my fellow new grads. And that's when I started to realize I just was less confident. I didn't actually not have the skills. So, and I didn't like to have people mad at me. So like the first time I had a, a doctor that was grumpy because being in a smaller town, you're waking doctors up at 2am. Mm -hmm. And the first time I didn't have all the information, I hated that. So I never let that happen again. I had all my vital signs all like I could give report because the best way to not have anyone mad at you was to do it right. So really I was a pretty dependable good employee. The first time I ever had any kind of disciplinary action was when I worked in the ICU, I started to call in sick a lot. And that's when I actually did tell my manager, well, I'm kind of struggling. I don't know what's going on. I'm just I'm depressed. It's not going well. And she just went, oh, that's okay. Well, I still have to write you up. You've missed too many days of work. Um, but other, up until then, I'd never had any issues like that. 
Well, the ICU in general is so heavy <laughs> emotionally. I feel like, especially for people who really care about others in general, and, and I've read a lot of information that people with ADHD, that connection that they have with others, even if they don't know them, just these people who are suffering, those mental health days are so important with us. And when you see death and disparity at a very high rate or at a high level, you have to take those days. So what was the, what was the turning point for you to get out of the hospital setting? I got put on Wellbutrin and I didn't learn until many years later um, that Wellbutrin is an atypical treatment for ADHD. Yep. That probably really helped. But at that point, I realized I had to find a better life balance. Up until then, I just kind of thought that I could just muscle through whatever I was dealing with. But I knew at that point I couldn't. So I switched and kind of sold myself into a job at hospice that I wasn't really, they really wanted someone with hospice experience, but I just reached out to a small hospice agency and they ended up hiring me as a case manager and like, yeah, okay, we'll take you, uh, which was totally crazy, but uh, it was a good, it was a good change and started going to therapy and getting a sense of at least beginning to try and figure out how to cope in a more balanced way with my life and whatnot. So leaving the hospital was part of that. How long ago was that, that you actually left the hospital setting? Uh, 2007. 2007. So that's a, a little bit ago. That's great. So how have you been since you left? Well, it was definitely a good step, but not having a good sense of what I was dealing with. I definitely still had struggles along the way. It, it looked different. I never went back to that, that place. I never, um, I, I never quite had an episode of depression quite like that, but I did have periods of a lot of anxiety off and on over the years and definitely still had a lot of intense emotions and struggles. So it definitely didn't go away, but nothing that was as dramatic as that. And then I slowly just kept picking up tools and discovering ways to manage my emotions. And I had tried, but I didn't do therapy consistently. After I'd had the doc give me the diagnosis of a mood disorder, not otherwise specified, I kind of just decided I didn't fit any boxes and for a while just blamed the struggles I had on trauma from my childhood, which I'm sure calculates in, but it didn't quite, I just, I, it didn't connect. And so I just internalized the concept that clearly I was just weird and there wasn't an explanation. And so I just needed to figure out how to deal with who I was. So I just started um, kind of trying to care plan myself. I thought about nursing school where we'd write a care plan for someone and we didn't need a diagnosis. We just needed to know what their symptom was and then we could find solutions. So I would take the issue in my life that was causing me struggle and I'd look for that symptom and start searching and digging, trying to find ways to cope with that and just kind of tried to biohack my own mental health over the next decade or so. And probably by the time I was, by the time I figured out I had ADHD, that's why I never went in to get diagnosed because by then I'm like, well, kind of already biohacked a pretty effective treatment plan. So I guess I'll just roll with this. How is that epiphany of what you actually had that physicians or whoever didn't point directly to it, which is so common in women. So let me throw that out there that it is so common that women are misdiagnosed, that they're not diagnosed at all, that they're kind of tossed to the side, unfortunately. 
And you have to do so much homework yourself (laughs) to figure out that you do check these boxes that a lot of psychiatrists, psychologists, that they, they just miss. Um, But it doesn't invalidate anything that you're feeling. It doesn't invalidate what you know to be your truth. So since that happened to you, since you have that epiphany of, wait a minute, actually I do fit into a category and there is a community of people there. There is information how I can be more productive, that I can be more successful to yourself. How has that helped you when dealing with others, when teaching others, when developing and creating a business that requires you to care about the people who work for you and work with you? Well, I think we had already built a team. One of the reasons we had such a loyal team was because not even not realizing ADHD was what was going on. I had built my business on the idea that I was happier and healthier when I had a work-life balance. And I wanted that for my staff too. So we attracted people who were looking for something different. And then those people tended to be really loyal. Um, And early on, it was difficult because I wasn't a big fan of conflict. That was something I struggled with in management was holding my employees accountable. But as I built skills, it's a little easier to figure out what people need and how to provide that framework. But also understanding different learning styles. When I'm working with caregivers and teaching caregivers, I can often pick up on when a normal kind of educational approach is difficult for them. And I think that they can feel, so I try to keep my classes lively and focused on interaction and talking and drawing out each person and using videos and a variety of different videos to kind of intrigue their brain because a lot of people end up in caregiving because they're not huge book learners. So asking them to spend eight hours in a class learning about diabetes, their eyes are like, oh, this is so hard. So I try to really help get their buy-in and make it applicable. So they leave with something that they can, they can really apply right away. So when I write continuing ed classes or anything like that, I'm looking for really how to help them understand early on, like hook their brain so they know what they're going to get from this class and why they want to be focused and then keep it through the class so that they walk away with knowledge and they feel positive about the class. What has that done for your mental health to be able to provide that atmosphere? Because it's one thing for us to crave that type of environment for ourselves, right? Like we can recognize as something that we would value, that we would But to create that safe space, to create that type of educational gravity, what what has that done for you? Because I hear about all that you're doing for everyone else. I want to know how that's helped you. I think it helped me to, to be patient with myself too, to stop and reason through and go, okay, well, look at the efforts I've gone to advocate for my son. Look at how much I value him despite where he might struggle. Look at the the things I appreciate about my husband, despite him struggling in other areas that are different. I can extend that same kindness to myself. Like I can do that. And that's something that we often don't do. So I've tried to stop it intentionally. Uh, Last year, we won a couple of awards locally. And those are the missions. That's a big deal. It is. And we won an award called the Senior Heroes Biz Award that's local. And then also um, the Vancouver Business Journal uh, Best in um, Home Health Agency for the year. And normally those are the kind of the things that with imposter syndrome, it's like, oh, right. that's just 
just a mistake. Like I, I'm not really, and I was able to stop and go, you know what? I'm actually going to accept the compliment. We did something cool. This is awesome. And just try to go, well, if other people can succeed when we provide that right environment, then maybe I don't need to be so upset with myself when I look and realize that there's a doom pile in the corner of my room. And I swear it wasn't there five minutes ago, but it's there now. And instead of like being harsh, going, oh, all right, well, maybe I'll just clean it up. So that that helps. It's how we talk to ourselves and being aware of that is something I can try and work on every day. And it helps a lot. Is it so strange because you were just talking about how there were struggles that you had with being in management because having to discipline other people or fire other people, we don't want to hurt others, even, even if they're doing things that are destructive to your business, to patients, whatever, but it's so easy for us to do that to ourselves. Isn't that just wild? It really is. And that's where, I mean, looking back when I started looking at like the twice exceptional kids and realizing um, in seventh grade, I took the PSATs and had got one of a level on my verbal skills that entitled me to go to some super expensive elite gifted kid camp that I didn't go to because I didn't have close to that kind of financial resources. But I didn't even think at the time like what that meant. And so when I started reflecting back and looking at my son, I was like, huh, that's interesting. How is it that I grew up with knowing so clearly all the areas that I lacked and couldn't manage and, you know, so much shame over like, oh, I can't keep my house clean. My handwriting's bad. There's, you know, this thing that I'm bad at. I forget things. There's, there's just this whole list of things I fail at. And oh, huh. I completely ignored what I was good at. You just completely dismiss it all. And so it, it is, we don't do that to other people, but to ourselves, we're awesome at it. I, I mean, we live in a neurotypical world and we know that, but a lot of us is social construct. I even take the time to look around and I think, ah, if I don't have this podcast room clean and it's a disaster, <laughs> why do I feel guilty? Because whose opinion Am I basing the guilt that I have on the mess that allows me to go watch and support my husband play softball? I think it's so important for us to try to normalize and to create a safe space. Yeah, absolutely. And figuring out, so for us, one of the things that really helped us to try to keep the house cleaner was to recognize what did feel good. What did we need as a family and really approach it as a family. And okay, so this corner fell apart again. Well, let's just fix it. But we, we don't need to keep it to some level that's created by someone else. It's about a level where we can relax and enjoy our home and it can be clean and not attract mice because we live in the country. And and rather than like, when you find that interest, like I want it clean because of these things mm-hmm. versus I want it clean because these people are going to judge me for being a horrible mom because my house is too messy, which was the first several years of my motherhood journey was, oh, what's wrong with me? And I, if I just did this better, and there's a tendency then too, that I think keeps you from realizing that neurodivergency where people are like, well, of course, early motherhood's hard. So of course you're struggling, but there's a level where it's no, no, really, this is not working. That needs to kind of be heard sometimes. I think that doesn't help the diagnosis issue. 
Oh, I could not agree more with you. For people who have not been diagnosed yet, but they feel like this is something that is appropriate for them. I mean, clearly we've both been in that place before. What would you say to them? What encouragement would you send in their direction? I think they need to remember that these concepts like ADHD, they're psychologists and we're not looking at brain scans to diagnose these we're putting people in boxes so if you see yourself there then start researching the coping skills because one of the most powerful things for me was the dialectical behavioral training or therapy which I found just self-study and I knew I didn't check off the boxes for borderline personality but I knew that the, the coping skills helped me learning to cope with those emotions so if you need a diagnosis keep looking find the one that fits. If your gut says, I know this doctor is telling me I fit these boxes, but I don't, it's not like that. Then trust that. Cause I didn't trust that. I knew I didn't fit, but I kept, okay, well, that's what they said. So trust your own gut and look for the things that help. Don't get so fixated on that label versus what are the things that help you to be happy and healthy? Find that, find that community, find the coping skills and just chase that rabbit hole so that you can take care of yourself. And there's so many resources out there that you can be like, I have a problem being on time. Well, there, if you research it, there's lots of ways that people will encourage you and lots of tips and tricks to be more punctual. I still struggle with it, but whatever. Um, (laughs) What about people who are involved in healthcare, whether it's nurses, CNAs, same thing that either they're newly diagnosed or they really feel that this is something that points towards them. What token do you have for them to be able to be successful, to be able to feel like they contribute to their field of study? Remembering that oxygen mask analogy from the airplane, take care of yourself. We cannot long-term care for human beings if we don't care for ourselves. And we may have to make hard choices. And reality, one of the things that kept me from leaving the hospital was you make more money in the hospital than you do in community settings. And so I stayed for too long because I didn't want to give that money up at that point. So I think being really honest with yourself and viewing yourself the way you would a patient or a client going I, what would I tell my patient? Would I tell them this was okay? And if the answer is no, this would not be okay for someone I was caring for, well, then why is it okay for me? And really recognizing that we can't long-term be healthy if, for, for our clients, if we don't address those things. So, you know, don't ignore the elephant in the room. Definitely. Because I mean, if you can't get out of bed on your days off, there's probably <laughs> a, a problem with the reason why your struggle is there to start off with. I just want to throw out there too, if your job is making you unhappy, if you are struggling with burnout, which many, many people in the medical field do and have, that hospital was there before you ever got into your practice. Whether you're a doctor, whether you're a nurse, whether you're a CNA, they were there, they were functioning, which also means you're going to be there when you aren't anymore. And Whatever happens to you, the hospital doesn't stop. So it is very important because you only have one life. I mean, we know Eric Erickson, right? So like at the end of life, when you look back at integrity versus despair, don't let it be despair. You you are important. You are worth whatever needs to be created in whatever space 
so that you're happy through your life. And I'm so glad you found that, Beth. (laughs) Well, thank you. Remembering too, in healthcare, there's so many different avenues. Sometimes we see people just burn out of healthcare entirely, but you were drawn there for a reason. So just keep, keep looking, keep looking for the right, the right fit and the opportunity to, to shine and find that positive for yourself. Most definitely. I, I think especially nursing is such a beautiful field because if you're more of a sedentary person, you can find a job that's appropriate for that. If you're not a people person, you can find a job that's appropriate for that. Like if you want to be busy every single second and feel under pressure, there's a job appropriate for that. So I I could not agree more to keep searching, to keep finding that perfect fit because it's out there. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you so much, Beth, for coming on here. I just want you to share with everyone again, exactly where they can find you, your blog, even if there are listeners around your area that maybe they're interested in working for you and your company after hearing you. Can you share all that again, please? Absolutely. So I'm on Instagram at uh, Vast Paul Style. The name is uh, Paul Style Adventures in ADHD. And that's our website as well. And then if you're interested in In It Together, it's uh, www.iitrn.org. And that's where you can learn all about our professional services here in Washington State. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Neurodivergent Nurse. I hope that you enjoyed it just as much as I did whenever I got to sit down and have this chat with her. If you would like to contribute to this podcast, you can go to patreon.com forward slash the Neurodivergent Nurse, where you can get exclusive bonus episode, script of the show prior to the release, uncut video interviews of the guest, input on upcoming shows and ideas, and even more. Also, be sure to follow the Neurodivergent Nurse on Instagram and TikTok. And if you enjoyed today's episode, be sure to share it with someone that you think could also benefit from the Neurodivergent Nurse and go ahead while you have time and while you're thinking about it and rate it and leave a review five stars on your favorite listening platform so that other people can find the show easily as well. And I hope you have a wonderful week and I can't wait to talk to you again.